good win. You know, it's tough to win on the road. And um, obviously we didn't play our best, so we got to uh, get back to work. We got a you know, good little break here, use it, and then uh, get back to work, see if we can get better. We, we control the destiny of everything we do, everything we touch, everything we put our hands on. We got to be better. I have to be better for this football team. That's huge. You know, it's huge to uh, to keep the lead in our division. And uh, anytime you can you can win road games, it's it's big. You know, and uh, always said if you can win your home games and split on the road, you're be in playoffs every year. Well, Bruce Arians is definitely in midseason form. Whenever the color of his face. Matches the color of his shirt. He is good to go. And he's there, as he was all of last year. Peter King is here. Mike Florio is here. That would be me for the next two hours on Peacock. Re-air on NBCSN. Podcast, wherever podcasts are available. Sky Sports. Hello to our friends in the UK and in Ireland and Scotland and Wales and everywhere else who watches on Sky. It's PFT Live. And it's Friday morning and week six is here. Hello, Peter. Mike, you know, I thought of two things looking at Arians. You know, the week before they played New England, I was talking to Blaine Gabbert. Uh, I was going to talk to him after the game about Tom Brady. They were in the same quarterback room. What was it like? Blah, blah, blah. And so I asked Blaine Gabbert, what was Bruce Arians like this week? You know, coming off... uh, you know, sort of a desultory week and all that. And I I just wondered what kind of coach he was. He said, hey, listen, he was very simple. He said two things. We don't lose two in a row. And if you win all your home games and split on the road, you're going to be in great shape and you're going to be in the playoffs. And that's just what he said last night. And what the Bucks have done right now in uh, in a sort of a sandwich road trip, you know, two road games at New England, at Philly, sandwiching a home game in the span of 12 days and winning them all, two of them in one-sided fashion. Uh, no, one of them in one-sided fashion. I counted last night, but it really wasn't. It, you know, Tampa Bay now, to me, has basically said to the rest of the NFC, look, we know we lost to the Rams. And we know there are some good teams in the NFC. We respect Dallas. But to win this conference, you got to come and get us. That's right now. But that loss to the Rams could haunt them later, depending upon what the Rams do the rest of the way. Because could. if you finish it in could. a tie with the Rams, you have to go back to L.A. instead of having the Rams come to you for the NFC Championship game. Not that that mattered last year for the Buccaneers to have to go on the road, which they did for every playoff game and won because they did not win their division and they had to do it the hard way and they did. But this year they're in position to at least have one or two home games in the playoffs. There's only one bye also, so that's important to be the one seed if you can. But when you look at their schedule, there's a lot of winnable games coming up and they should be able to hit a groove here. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. When they encounter the Saints in New Orleans week eight Halloween because the Saints swept them last year. But the the biggest challenge left is Buffalo December 12, which could be a Super Bowl preview, just like we got last year, week 12, when it was Kansas City and Tampa Bay. This year, Buffalo, Tampa Bay may be getting together 
two months almost to the day before the Super Bowl. The key question about that Week 12 game is, okay, so one of the things that uh, General Manager Jason Light and Bruce Arians did in the offseason said, hey, we're bringing everybody back. That plus they got a first-round pass rusher and a third down back that they lacked, you know, Gio Bernard. And so they said, essentially, we're bringing back the same team. But the only thing, the only difference is, Last year, they had a very, very fortunate run of good luck when it comes to injuries. And this year, not so much, especially that defensive secondary. What shape is that secondary going to be in in December when they've got to face the Buffalo Bills? That's a big question. And look, that's not their biggest game of the season. Everybody will want to make it that, but it's not. Because it isn't a conference game. It's not a division game, obviously. But that is the kind of game they're going to have to win in January and February if they're going to repeat. Yeah, absolutely. And last night's game, it did feel like it was going to be a blowout. It felt like the Buccaneers were on the verge of making it 35-14, 42-14. I give the Eagles credit for hanging around. And let me just make this comment while I'm thinking of it. Because when the Eagles score the touchdown to make it 28-20 and they come out for the two-point conversion. Now, I don't want to call out Troy Aikman, but let me go ahead and call out Troy Aikman. Don't act surprised anymore, (laughs) broadcasters. When a team is up or down 14, excuse me, down 14, they score a touchdown and they come out to go for two. This has been baked into the thought process for a while now. When it's Doug Peterson's Eagles several years ago that gave us the initial lesson. Don't act like, well, I don't like this. Well, I know why they're doing it. This is a common thing now because if you get it, then you're only down six. You win the game with seven. You avoid overtime with seven. If you don't get it, you, t- you go for two. If you score another touchdown, and then you force overtime. So you have two shots at going for two. And if you get the first one, you got a chance to win the game straight up if you score another touchdown. So, But but I, I mentioned it because in this world of legalized gambling, where this sports book and that sports book and this other sports book are official sports betting partners of the NFL, that two-point conversion was outcome determinative because it was Bucks minus 6.5. Eagles go for one there. Bucks cover. I don't know how much of that gets baked into setting the line, but it was amazing, and it didn't affect the game, but it affected the game within the game that the NFL is using to attract more people to the game, Peter. And look, I, I don't, I, I'm going to play dumb on this because I am dumb about it. I did not know what you just said. However, I will just make this point. You referred to it in the middle of that. Whoever is setting a line on a football game now needs to understand that if a team is down 14 late and scores a touchdown and there's four or five minutes to go, the exact situation that the Eagles were in on Thursday night, then there's a good chance. It's not going to happen with every coach, you know, but there's a good chance a lot of coaches are going for two right there. And Mike, you made the best point of all, because to me, the reason why the old line thinking is kick the extra point there, then score again, then kick an extra point and go to overtime. All I say about that is if I am a coach 
And let's just say I'm playing the New York Jets and I'm down 14 and I do that. Maybe I do kick the extra point. And then I score another touchdown and kick the extra point because I don't, I'm not worried remotely about the offense of the New York Jets. But if I'm going up against Tampa Bay and Antonio Brown looks like he has discovered the fountain of youth just like Tom Brady has, I'm saying to myself, I'm not giving the Bucks a chance to win this game in overtime. I'm trying to win it in regulation. That plus the fact that, Mike, one thing I found on my training camp tour this year, more and more teams spending more and more time on short yardage goal line plays, plays at the two-yard line, okay? And so what does that tell you? It tells you that teams know that there's a good chance they're going to be going for two more this year. And when you have 12 missed extra points the weekend before, that's another reason to say the hell with going for one. Let's just go ahead and go for two, especially as we get to the point where the game's on the line. But the Bucks were able to hold off. The Eagles had a long drive to end the game. They took a knee inside the five, which I'm sure made those folks that had Bucks minus 6.5 even more salty about the outcome of the game. But that's what it is. And you mentioned the Buccaneers offense. And I'll pivot to the other thing that the NFL loves to promote to get people engaged in the game, and that's fantasy football. The Bucks are a fantasy football nightmare because you never know which guy is going to get the targets, the catches, the yards, the touchdowns. Last night, it was an Antonio Brown night, and he had 93 yards and on, Leonard Fournette. I believe it was nine catches, and you flip it over for net, right, 81 rushing yards, two touchdowns, and another 46 receiving Last night was Fournette and Brown and O.J. Howard with 49 yards and a touchdown. Mike Evans, two catches for 27 yards. Chris Godwin, five for 43. So you never know any given week which guy is going to emerge. And I think a lot of it is probably dictated by the defense too, Peter, because if they're trying to take one guy away, well, the other guy is going to be open. And when you have that many weapons, you pivot to the other guy. Brady's thrown in the open guy. He doesn't care. He didn't just see that graphic. And he and if he did see it, he doesn't care. And yep. and I think the one thing and I remember this vividly 14 months ago being at Bucks training camp for 2 days. What did three different players on the offense tell me? Three that Brady had told all of them, "Listen, you know, don't worry about who's getting the ball. You know, for, forget stats, forget numbers and the, I'm paraphrasing." But all of those guys, especially guys like Cameron Brait, whose workload was going to go down. It just was. Um, they had to be on board, and they were on board from the beginning because when you have Tom Brady as your quarterback and he's telling you, just do what I say and we'll be fine, then you know, you absolutely know that there could be any given week a diminution of your numbers because he's throwing to the open guy. And Mike, one other thing. Really, really happy just personally for O.J. Howard last night. I spent some time with him in camp last year. Uh, he was so excited. Brady was personally coaching him every day in practice. And then he gets the injuries out for the year. And now look at him last night. The Bucks were always convinced that what you saw last night is what O.J. Howard could be. He never showed that before Tom Brady showed up. And last night, you saw O.J. Howard being a huge factor on a winning team. 
Slow start to the season as he continued to recover from the torn Achilles that he suffered last year right around this time. And Rob Gronkowski was healthy. That's the other thing that's sneaky impressive yeah. about what the Bucks have done. Gronk goes out after the loss to the Rams. They don't have him from for the New England game. No problem, although that game wouldn't have been as close if Gronk could play. But they're 3-0 and now without Gronkowski, who supposedly was fairly close to playing in this one. Now they get the mini-buy before they play the Bears. If he was close to playing in this one, barring some sort of a setback, he should be ready to go when they play again uh, against Chicago in nine days. Yeah, but if I'm Bruce Arians, if I'm Byron Leftwich, the one thing I'm doing is saying not that this game against the Bears doesn't matter. Of course it's, it, it matters. They all matter. But how many teams in the NFL right now, Mike, would drool at the thought of having a tight end depth chart of O.J. Howard and Cameron Braid. That would be one of the best tight end depth charts in the league, certainly top 10. And that doesn't even include one of the top 100 football players in the history of the game, Rob Gronkowski. So, you know, take it, take it slow with Gronk. It's like I saw Richard Sherman go out last night. That's at a horrible position, a position of huge need. But listen, Richard Sherman should be on this team for what he can do, you know, after December 1, not right now, because he does have an expiration date on him. I'm not sure that Gronk does. I just think Gronk got hit really bad, hurt his ribs, broke ribs. Uh, but I'll tell you, I would be giving guys maximum amount of time to come back and play because they're just going to need those guys when the games really matter. Yeah, Sherman had a hamstring injury, and who knows how long it'll take for him to return from that. We saw Christian McCaffrey have his hamstring injury three weeks ago on a Thursday night, and he didn't practice at all yesterday. And those just take time to heal, and they are susceptible to aggravation and setback, and then you need even more time to get it ready to go. Leonard Fournette, you mentioned him earlier. Let's hear both from Tom Brady and Bruce Arians about that two-touchdown performance from Leonard Fournette who became at least for one night the clear top option in the Buccaneers backfield he's a great back I mean he's big tough catches it runs blocks does everything for us so great to have him in there um obviously when he's rolling it's tough to just tough to stop us yeah Lenny's been really really good really solid uh run and pass and pass protection he's, he's playing as a really good three down back right now at a high level yeah, and, and you know, this is one of the guys that became a free agent, could have gone anywhere. And the Buccaneers really did benefit, Peter, from the pandemic-fueled dip in the salary cap. Because usually when you yes. have a championship team yes. with that many free agents, the other teams will come and raid it specifically to knock it down. This year, teams had enough of their own crap to worry about, and they didn't have the luxury to go raid the Buccaneers, advantage Buccaneers. Not only that, Mike, but when you think about Leonard Fournette, what is so interesting about him is that if you look at the 2019 season in Jacksonville, this guy had 1,674 total yards, scrimmage yards, in 15 games. That is a productive running back. And yet the next year, end of August, they're trying to trade him. They would have taken a six for him, Mike. They couldn't get anything for Leonard Fournette, and they cut him. 
And this, at this time, you know, everybody said, hey, you know what? The, the Bucks are in good shape right now with Ronald Jones. We don't really know about the attitude of Leonard Fournette. You know, not sure how he's going to handle being a role player, all that stuff. And he came in and he got in line and you saw him last night. Incredibly productive. This is three straight 100 total yard games in this offense. He's hugely important to what they do. In fact, Mike, think about this right now. If you had a choice of playing a game, if you're Bruce Arians, Byron Leftwich, right now, today, and somebody said, okay, you can play next week's game either with Mike Evans or with Leonard Fournette, but not both, which one would you choose? That's a tough call. That's a really, really tough call. And I bet Is they it? would say, oh, we got to we got to have Fournette. You know, we yeah. got to have Fournette. So in, 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 the only reason I say it's a tough call is because Mike Evans in any game can give you 170 and two touchdowns. But last night we saw the every down value of Leonard Fournette. Yeah, absolutely. And the the problem for Evans in that analysis is you've got Chris Godwin, you've got Antonio Brown, you've got yeah, Tyler Johnson, right. you don't currently have Scotty Miller, and you have the tight ends to supplement as well. It's either Fournette or Ronald Jones, and Jones has kind of been hovering in that doghouse territory. Remember, he had the fumble in the opening game against the Cowboys, and then they didn't put him back in the game after that. They didn't think he was mentally ready to play, and uh, you know, so Fournette has kind of emerged as the guy that they can rely on, and it's all about holding on to the football and producing when you get the opportunity and last night he clearly did and uh Fournette having a good year the Bucks having a great year and we'll see where it goes from here let's flip it over to the Eagles because they were coming off of an upset win over the Panthers that caused people to maybe think of them a little bit differently or maybe as the case may be think differently of the Carolina Panthers but the Eagles showed some fight the Eagles hung around and they did make it interesting with that late touchdown I, I think they still have a long way to go to be where they want to be, and who knows whether this current collection of coaches and players will get them there, but they don't have anything to be ashamed of. I Look, they didn't have anything to be ashamed of against the Chiefs, and I at a certain point, your fans don't want to be able to say, well, okay, well, we don't suck. We're not the Jaguars. At a certain point, you just want to win football games. Look, last night told me two things about the Eagles. Tough team. Really competitive team, feisty. Um, I love the element that Jalen Hurts' legs can bring to a game. And I love the fact that Jalen Hurts just is not afraid of anything. I mean, he came back. He fought last night and all that. But, Mike, you know what? I think at the end of the day, when the Eagles uh, are going to examine whether Jalen Hurts is going to be their long-term quarterback... He's got time to fix it. But I'll tell you one thing. He's just not accurate enough. He hasn't shown that he's accurate enough in the first month plus of this season. He missed three or four throws last night that could have extended drives that just were really hurtful to their cause. So, I, I, I mean, I'm impressed with what I've seen out of him, but he's also got limitations as well. 
They really were suffocated offensively. It's amazing the game was only six points. It took them a long time to cross 100 total yards. Hertz had 115 yeah. passing yards, 12 for 26, which is just not the kind of accuracy that we are used to from NFL quarterbacks. And the running game, actually, to have 100 yards on the ground total against the Buccaneers, that's pretty impressive. And that sparked a question for Coach Nick Sirianni after the game about why they didn't run it more. Let's hear from Sirianni on that point. Again, it always starts with if us putting the guys in position to make plays. Um, and so it starts with us as coaches first to put them in the right position, go to the right player uh, with the football um, to try to get our guys going. Um, so it always starts with that, but then and then you you always look at the execution too, right? It's just it's the execution and it's and it's us putting them in the right position. So there was there was definitely some missed opportunities there in the past game, uh, but it felt like there wasn't enough missed opportunities. There's more that hey, we just got to we get a, do a better job of getting these guys in position to make plays against right. the defenses. At what point do you have to kind of reassess, um, you know, what you're doing philosophically on offense to make sure that your running backs are getting the ball? Yeah. Um, Always. I mean, we're always thinking. We're always thinking about that. Uh, the the two the, the couple plays that Miles had today that were well were long runs. Those were RPOs too. Um, but we yeah we just we have to be able to to be able to get them touches in there. And uh, I, I don't think I, I've made that. I, I've said that too before that we got to be able to make the, make sure they get get their touches. Um, but again, we're we're trying to call the best play that's that's for us in that particular time. Um, we had called runs today. They weren't they weren't they weren't real great for us. Um, and that's why we went with a little more RPOs with it. You know, Peter, I don't want to pick on Sirianni here. I don't want to, but it's going to come off like I am. But coach has to be the ultimate communicator in an organization. Coach has to be the one who can inspire confidence and faith and belief and take advantage of the opportunity to provide explanations that the media can then take to the fans, the fans can then take to their other fans, armed with debates when they're sitting at the bar or out at the barbecue or wherever the case may be. And when I think of how Brandon Staley communicates, and it seems like every press conference he has, there's a two-minute chunk that you would like to memorize and use in your own life whenever you could, and it's amazing how straightforward <laughs> and reasonable it is. And then I see Sirianni, and I think, man, look, I, the guy may be the best coach who's ever lived, but when it comes to that important skill of communication and persuading fans and media to understand who you are, why you do what you do, why your team does what it does. Now, Bill Belichick is closer to Sirianni than Staley, but he doesn't need to inspire confidence. When you're a first-year coach with a program that everybody has questions about, you need to be able to answer some of those questions in a way that people will say, oh, I get it. He's got a plan. Yes, it's going to work. Yes, let's give it time. Yes, they're on the right track. I don't get that from Sirianni. Here's what I think some coaches need to um uh, Nick Sirianni was didn't want to say last night hey we were facing the best run defense I don't care what the stats say we were facing the best run defense in football last night you think I'm going to run Miles Sanders normally 15 to 20 times in a game like that you're crazy I mean and and the running we're going to do is mostly going to be with Jalen Hurts trying to get away from between the tackles, okay? And there's no harm 
insane when you're explaining why you had the game plan that you did. There's no harm in saying, listen, we, uh, we have great respect for what Tampa has done against the run. Vita Vey right now is the best run player in football, blah, 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 whatever it is you would say. So that obviously is going to have something to do with what we do. And when we saw we were going to be able to do a little bit more than that, we started to do it. We started to give the ball to Miles Sanders a little bit more. And I think the reason why Eagles fans would be upset after a game like that is that they look at their numbers and they say, man, we're gaining 5.2 yards of carry this year on the run. And we got a quarterback who is really more, you know, he's, he's too inaccurate. So why aren't we running the ball more? And I think that is something this week, this weekend, and going into the Eagles, the rest of their schedule now, their last 11 games, they have to consider who Jalen Hurts is. And then they have to consider what their running game is. And to me, right now, their running game is better than their passing game. And we've seen them twice now in primetime this season. The last time we saw them on a Monday night against the Cowboys, Miles Sanders had two carries. Kenneth Gainwell had one, and that was it for the running backs. Jalen Hurts had nine rushes, but the running backs need to get the ball more. And I don't know what's wrong with saying we're going against one of the best run defenses in football. That factors into the game planning, but they did gain 100 yards last night on the ground. Kevin Stefanski explained very well earlier this week how your approach changes during a game and you have to coach the game that's unfolding in front of you. And there is another team out there that is trying to do certain things. So your approach is going to be affected by what that team does well and what that team is doing. And I just look for reasons to have faith in the Eagles. And you've mentioned it a couple times now. This year was the opportunity for Jalen Hurts to prove he can be the guy. And I firmly believe that at the end of the year, there's going to be a pass-fail grade applied to Jalen Hurts. And if he passes, they keep him as the starter next year. And if he fails, they go find somebody else. And I still don't completely rule out the Eagles making a late run for Deshaun Watson if they've decided by the Tuesday after week eight that Hurts isn't the guy. I'm not sure that Watson wants to go there, which is – one with the practical impediments if the Dolphins are also in the mix for Watson, where Watson does want to go. But, you know, Peter, Jalen Hurts kind of has this this tentative feel to his status with the Eagles because their first order of business is find out if he's a franchise quarterback, and if he's not, he's gone, and we got to move on to the next one. And... Mike, you know, the more football you watch this year, and look, I am not as down on Brian Flores and Chris Greer as I think most Dolphins followers are, but the more you watch football and the more you look at Miami and say, hmm, Miami's one and four. Right now, if the draft were held today, Miami would have a top 10 draft pick. I don't know what order the draft would be in today, and it doesn't matter because you're not drafting on... October 15th. If but, the season ended today, keep, it doesn't. Keep, I always love that. If the season ended yeah. today, well, it doesn't, so who cares? And it Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, but, but the point, point I was going to make is, you know, let's, let's try to be uh, fair and not have green-colored glasses on. The Eagles are going to do what? Go 
eight and nine, seven and 10, nine and eight. I don't know. They're not going to be great this year. But, you know, let's just say that the Eagles have the 15th pick and the Dolphins have the seventh pick. Let's just say. All right. So if that's the case and you're looking at what's going to happen next year, you know, next April, and I have no idea what quarterbacks are good anyway. We didn't even know a year ago who Zach Wilson was, and he ended up being the second pick in the draft. But my only point is that, you know, if you have the seventh and 15th picks in the draft and there is, look, if there's a no doubt quarterback, probably the team with the first pick is going to take him. But if there are other quarterbacks, that gives you the ammo to move up. And, you know, Howie Roseman has been, I would say, probably the biggest wheeler dealer in the first round of the draft in recent years. So I think they'll figure a way to try to get one of the quarterbacks they really like, unless, unless Jalen Hurts plays more accurate football in the last 11 games. And you mentioned how little we know about who the top quarterbacks will be. Immediately after the 2021 draft, the sports books began to post their odds for the first overall pick in the 2022 draft. And the guy who was 2.25 to 1 to be the first overall pick back in late April, early May has been benched and is going to answer, enter the transfer portal Oklahoma. That was Spencer Rattler. He was the clear favorite to be the first <laughs> overall pick in the draft. And now now he's not even on the field for the Oklahoma Sooners. So that extra year and hasn't he made change Hey, everything. Mike, hasn't he, hasn't he made $200,000 in NIL revenue? You know, he's sitting on the bench, and I don't know who's paying him. Some poor car dealer is paying him to, you know, 50000 bucks or whatever it is to sit on the bench and request out of Norman, Oklahoma. It's, uh, you know, football's a funny game sometimes. Back to Hertz, who capped his career at Oklahoma after transferring from Alabama. Let's hear from him a little bit about what he's trying to do with this Eagles team as he makes the most of his opportunity to prove that he's the guy. What is our identity as a football team? What is our identity as an offense? Um, I think we have everything we need here in Philadelphia. We have everything. Um, going toe-to-toe every team we play. Um, shooting ourselves in the foot. And not taking advantage of opportunities. Right? It starts with me. But I have unwavering faith in every everybody we have here. And it's, 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 it's a matter of putting it all together um, and making it flow. Ideally, what would you like the identity to be? I mean, I know that it's still forming, but what do you think is the you – you said you had the pieces. What do you think the identity should be of this team? I just want to win, and it's coming. Again, I don't want to pick on Nick Sirianni, but I'd rather <laughs> – listen to Jalen Hurts talk about the team it inspires me more about the Eagles I'm sorry Nick if you're watching and if you are well, what you the hell what, are you Mike? doing get back to work hey Mike 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 I'll, I'll make this point to you though think about what you just said okay Nick Sirianni has been speaking to a big room of press basically for nine months and not for all of nine months but the first time he'd ever done it basically was nine months ago when uh, the Philly media or whatever, I don't even know if that was in person or if it was Zoom, whatever. But I mean, he has been the man 
for nine months, okay? Jalen Hurts has been the man at Alabama for two years, having to, uh, you know, basically put thoughts together cogently after a game the way he did last night. Then he's got to do it for one year at Oklahoma. And those places are crammed with media people who cover the team. Maybe they're not as tough as the people in Philadelphia, but the bodies are equal. And so, and so if you look at that, Jalen Hurts has got far more experience in dealing with the press, even though he's whatever, 22 or 23 years old, than Nick Sirianni does. He's never had to do it before a few months ago. That's a great point. Brandon Staley's in the same boat as Sirianni, though, and it's just a fundamental difference between the two coaches, plain and simple. Yeah. And again, I don't want to pick Nick, pick on Nick Sirianni, but when you're going to be the coach of an NFL team, you step into that, that fray, and it's fair game for people to assess whether or not you're properly sending the messages that need to be sent about your team. There was a message sent last night, Peter, and I may have neglected to let the control room know that I wanted to see this video. I don't know if you've seen it, but after Tom Brady threw an interception, before we close the book on this game, I think this is something that's important and instructive to take a look at, or at least talk about if we don't have the video. If I filibuster long enough, maybe we'll have the video. But after I the interception, I saw the video. I know the video you're talking about. And, and listen, I, I'm not trying to engage in hyperbole here. I was disgusted by the effort of the referee to break up a fight between two siblings while the play's still going on. The play is still happening. If there's a violation of the rules, throw a flag. You don't put yourself between two players while the play is still happening happening because Brady watch the end Brady's like well sure am I going to go try to make this tackle what am I going to do because we saw Brady at one point this year show up after a turnover and drop a shoulder into somebody so if you're going to stick your nose in there or even pretend like you're going to you are fair game to have your 44 year old ass put on the ground so you make the decision (laughs) Tommy before because if you're going to get in there with the guys who are half your age, well, but don't but don't why don't are you blaming, don't don't expect. Why are you blaming Brady? Why are you blaming well, Brady? Blame I'm just Clay saying, Martin. Well, I agree. With, it is Clay Martin's fault, but but it it just irritates me because Brady surely was welcoming the help there. But I I'm astounded. If I'm the league office, if my first call today is to Clay Martin and say, "Hey, man, blow the whistle before you do that stuff. The play is still alive. You're you're yeah. not." You're not the referee in a boxing match. For God's sake, I've never seen anything like that. Mike, I know this is not on our agenda to talk about either, but you're right. Clay Martin shouldn't be adjudicating during a play. The bigger point with Clay Martin is, why'd you take six minutes and five seconds to do a replay review last night? Now, it's not just Clay Martin. That's Walt Anderson. That's the replay review uh, process. That was an absolute total disgrace. How much time can Joe Buck, Mike Pereira, and Troy Aikman fill? They did six (laughs) commercials during that replay review for crying out loud. That was objectionable and ridiculous. And any replay that takes that long, you should just say, we're sticking with the play on the field. If you watch it six times and you can't make a judgment on it, 
then the play stands. That's a classic case. 50 guys in a bar look at that play. 30 of them are going to say it was a catch. 20 of them are going to say it hit the ground. Don't make the change. That really ticked me off last night. Remember at one point they did have a time limit that they kind of enforced. That's the problem. What do you really do to enforce the time limit on the replay other than cut off the feet? Walt Anderson Anderson in New York says, it's over. It's over. Get back out there. Play the game. That's what they should do. They have got to do something about that. That was disgraceful. Wasting six minutes on national television, on a play that was too close to call. And you know what, Mike? You don't know right now, and I don't know right now if that was a complete pass. We don't know. So you leave it as a as, as a complete pass, whether it was an interception. Leave it as an interception, then. If you can't change the call on the field within two and a half minutes, it, it, don't change it. Stay with the call on the field. And Peter, the fact that Walt Anderson is the one making the ultimate replay decision, he needs someone to tell him to stop it because he's in the middle of it now and he's one of the ones doing the frame-by-frame Zapruder film review of what occurred. And you're right, but at a certain point, it's got to end. At a certain point, it's got to end. He's got to have the presence of mind, whether he has an egg timer whether he turns That's on not. his stopwatch on his phone, he's got to know that that this is taking too damn long and we're looking for something Replay that isn't there. Replay was created. Replay was created to fix the obviously wrong calls. That yep, was not I agree with an you. obviously wrong call. That was a disgrace, a black eye for the NFL's officiating department. I agree with you completely, and just another thing that needs to be buttoned up. And you can look forward to Walt Anderson appearing tonight on NFL Network to explain that moment in full detail because the NFL is committed to absolute and total transparency when it comes to the deficiencies (laughs) of officiating, and I'm being sarcastic. Speaking of transparency, we're starting to maybe get some of an explanation in a roundabout way as to why the NFL isn't interested in full transparency when it comes to the 650,000 emails. More were leaked last night from the Washington football team investigation, and it creates a problem for one of the people who directly report to Commissioner Roger Goodell. We'll discuss that when PFT Live continues right after this. It was an interesting Thursday night, and it was actually an interesting week. What happened was, in the aftermath of the John Gruden resignation, I became very troubled by the reality that there are 650,000 Washington football team investigation emails out there that are supposedly being kept secret unless and until they want to peel off a few of them and bring someone down. That is a tremendous amount of power that if in the wrong hands, can create all sorts of problems. And it's clearly in the wrong hands or they wouldn't have brought John Gruden down when they did. And I wanted to talk to Jeff Pash, the NFL general counsel, about the various questions that are related to this entire situation. And the NFL declined. And maybe now we know one of the reasons why the NFL declined. As it turns out, Jeff Pash was one of Bruce Allen's e-pen pals along with John Gruden. Now, 
this story from the New York Times last night. I think the Wall Street Journal also has an item. There are not emails remotely close to the kind of racist, transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic content that John Gruden had communicated to Bruce Allen. But the picture that's painted between Bruce Allen and Jeff Pash, and Peter, I'll give you an opportunity to disagree with me completely if you choose to, the picture that's painted is not the one that I think a league office should have with an individual team president. There needs to be an arm's length, no closer, no farther. All teams need to be treated the same, and there's a sense of a coziness there between Pash and Allen taking a look at fines, rescinding fines. There's just a, it's more than just political gamesmanship. It feels like there was a level of closeness between the two that will upset the other 31 teams now that this is out in the open. I mean, Mike, it's, uh, you know, some of the emails that we both read last night in the New York Times story, and great work by the Times, by the way, um, some of the emails you read just make you uncomfortable with whether there was a finger on the scale from the NFL office to the Washington organization. The NFL will say absolutely, totally not. But when you have the lawyer for the NFL saying to Bruce Allen, the president of Washington football team, I know you are on it and would not condone something untoward. I mean, that basically says you have prejudged the case before the case has begun. And you can be friendly with people and you can be close to them. But when cheerleaders and with women start to say to uh, publicly that, you know, we have a problem with sexual harassment, Um, The league then cannot say to Washington, the league can't say, listen, we know you guys are handling this right. Uh, You know, let's let's look into this. But but we know you wouldn't condone anything like this. Well, uh, all you have to do now is look at the evidence. Forty women alleging sexual harassment. And in the NFL's own words, at the end of that case, it was one of the worst examples they've ever seen of culture within any franchise in the NFL. So to me, it it just, it smells very bad and it looks almost as bad. Let me give you the best example that I can think of off the top of my head, Peter. Do you think Jeff Pash made comments like that to anyone from the Patriots in the early days of Deflategate? I know that you wouldn't be involved in anything like that. Don't worry, everything will be fine. No, the perception was Pash was out to get them. And I still believe to this day that they made way too much out of it than they should have, that the investigation they conducted did not have conclusive evidence to support the findings that they were trying to jam into the round hole with the square peg. So when teams see that there's that level of coziness and that level of deference, it does create subtle competitive issues. Not obvious, not as obvious as running off a team's head coach in the middle of a season. And I'm going to get to that in a moment because I have a broader concern here. But the Pash-Allen relationship shows a level of comfort and something closer than arm's length. I think all 32 teams, that's the challenge for every sports league, all 32 teams need to be held at the same distance. You don't antagonize them 
you don't go after them unnecessarily. You don't treat them like pariahs, but you don't treat them like best friends either. There's a certain range where they all should be kept, and that's part of the obligation of a league office. I think there's going to be time when the dust settles on this thing. There's going to be, if all the players who are involved in this story retain their current positions um, in the NFL, I think there's going to be a time if Roger Goodell is not tone deaf. And many times, and I think sometimes in this story, he has been tone deaf. But I think if Roger Goodell is looking at his league honestly and is going to continue as commissioner and keep the people in place who are currently in place, um, then it's going to be what I would call time for a learning experience. And that learning experience is going to be Roger Goodell holding up these emails in front of everyone in his senior staff and saying, do you see how bad this makes us look? This is a lesson for us all. Don't do this. Don't say this. Don't have chummy emails to people who you may trust very, very much, but who might be in the middle of an absolute crap storm. Don't do it. And that to me, if, if and again, look, we, we haven't seen everything yet. Who knows what is in the rest of these emails? But to me, that is something that the league has to take out of this. And if they don't, then they truly are a tone-deaf organization. Let me get to that. We'll circle back to Pash because I want to get your thoughts on some of the specific statements he made. Again, it was not anything close to what Gruden said, but Pash, who's been a lawyer for decades, should know better than to reduce to writing, which gets preserved forever, things that could be problematic for him later. And hey, when I practice law, it's hard to win a case with testimony because you're not going to get Jack Nicholson to crack and say, you're damn right I did. You're going to win your case with documents. The documents are where the smoking guns reside. And it's stunning to me that Pash would allow himself to be compromised even to the smallest degree. However, we've got 650,000 emails that supposedly were buried under 300 feet of reinforced concrete, never to be seen again. That was the end result back in July. No written report from Beth Wilkinson. We're just going to levy the punishment and we're going to move on. And they played it perfectly. The world moved on. Nobody said boo for the most part. Then we get to October. And all of a sudden, for reasons that aren't clear and may never be clear, Peter, a handful of documents get sent by the league office to the Raiders regarding John Gruden. Why now? Why now? When did they first find these documents? Why now were these documents peeled off of the 650,000 documents stack and sent to the Raiders with an expectation that the Raiders were going to do something? And eventually the Raiders did by, I believe, telling John Gruden, we're going to have to fire you if you don't quit. So he quit. Why then, after that, did someone peel off some of these emails about Jeff Pash? and make them available. And it's possible you've got different people with different agendas and different motivations who are leaking different things here. But the people who have access, and I don't know how many people do have access to these documents, they have a tremendous amount of power because whoever is compromised in those emails, whoever it is, and we don't know and we won't know until they're all released, whoever is in there at any given time, they can be taken down. 
potentially. I'm not comfortable with the NFL generally having that power or specifically the individuals who have access to those emails having that power. That's one of the big reasons I've said and will continue to say they all need to be released now. So you don't go around. You know, and and I've I've I think the the extreme example here is you take a stack of emails to somebody before they're ever even leaked or reported or anyone does anything with them and says take a look at these and you decide what you're going to do and somebody quietly resigns from their job as coach of a team and we never hear from them again and we never know why it's because somebody weaponized these emails i'm not comfortable with these emails in a position where they can be weaponized against specific individuals the emails in essence is one person who's very close to the nfl told me this week the emails against john gruden basically were a mafia hit and you know you you think about that and you say oh boy that's harsh well wait a minute John Gruden had nothing to do with the Washington football team investigation. John Gruden was just, in his own misogynistic way, was sending emails to buddies who he knew were of the same mind than he that he was. And so, I'm, it sounds like I'm saying, "Oh, poor John Gruden." No, well, no, no, you're not defending him. You're not defending him. But it is indefensible that he's the one of all these people that got picked out. That's what's indefensible. Yeah. And 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 I think the thing that bothers me the most about all this, and I've really felt the entire week, it, my feeling hasn't changed since I read that story in the Times on Monday night. My feeling hasn't changed. And the feeling basically is that Daniel Snyder gets a $10 million fine. What, are the, what does that team take in every year? Three to $400 million. So basically, Daniel Snyder, for one year, okay, gets 5% of his income taken away. Boo-hoo-hoo. And then Daniel Snyder has his wife take over operations of the team, sort of. How do we know? what is talked about, what it, when a decision has to be made. How do we know that Daniel Snyder isn't the one making that decision? But, but be that as it may, Daniel Snyder will walk into work on March 1st after another lousy Washington season, which is all they have. Daniel Snyder will walk into work on March 1st and, you know, with a, with a clean bill of health. Everything's going to be fine. That's in the past. We're only looking forward. Well, on March 1st, John Gruden, who had nothing to do with that investigation, is going to be sitting in his shorts and T-shirt watching film in Tampa, wondering, what do I do with the rest of my life, which is now ruined? And I'm not crying for John Gruden at all. I'm just simply saying that what happened here stinks. You're absolutely right, Peter. And the question this week that I've gotten from so many people, is John Gruden the outlier or... Is there a vast majority of people who communicated with Bruce Allen and others who worked for the Washington organization and maybe others who were in the organization communicating among themselves, communicating with outsiders? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know where this lands between the two extremes of John Gruden was the only one who was engaging in this kind of over-the-top, offensive, inappropriate communication, and everyone was doing it unless we see We got to see. And until we see someone has the power to pick and choose, let's take a look at our enemies list. Let's see. Let me check my notes app in my phone and see who we don't like today. Today, we don't like this guy. Hey, 
Go check those emails, please. The 650,000. Do a global search. See if this. I don't like this guy. I used to like this guy. I don't like this guy anymore. You know, he said some stuff that I just don't like. I saw him on TV and he was saying some things about the league that I just don't like. Let's check those emails. That's the power that someone currently has. And that's what I've been trying to wake people up to. And as you said, when you call it a, a mafia hit, it does sound like hyperbole, but these are mob practices to be able to just kind of pick and choose who goes down and when they go down. Peter, you know, the, the light bulb came on for me today, and I mentioned this briefly a little bit ago, but, but let's focus on this. When did they first find the John Gruden emails? When? During the 10-month investigation that ended in July. Did they first find them? When did they first find them? And why didn't they go to Mark Davis with them the day they found them? And if they didn't do it then, what day did they decide to do it? And why did they decide to do it the day that they did? Why did they decide within the last two weeks we're going to put this packet of emails together and send them to Mark Davis? I, I, I don't want to be trite about this, but, but was the tipping point because he complained about the roof at SoFi Stadium? not being lightning proof was the tipping point that he complained about the visiting team locker rooms at SoFi Stadium, the new crown jewel of the NFL. Turn on NFL Network any given moment. You got a shot from a drone of SoFi Stadium. It's the Taj Mahal of the NFL. How dare you criticize SoFi Stadium? I don't know because the timeline makes no sense to me. Somebody decided after this thing was buried underground to dip back in and pull out documents and take down John Gruden. That is chilling. It is sinister. It is evil. And it needs to be exposed. I hope it will be. <clears throat> I hope it will be exposed. Excuse me. Um, because <clears throat> I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it came from a rogue investigator. I don't know if it came from, you know, inside the league office. I don't know where it came from. And uh, I, I prefer until I know, until I have some evidence where it came from, to not make absolute value judgments that it came from place X, Y, or Z. But wherever it came from, you know, the bothersome thing right now, as you say, Mike, is that they basically apparently can pick out whoever is the person who has his finger on the switch of these emails, that person can figure out what to do next. Because now it's, it's a matter of who's next? Who is next? I don't know who's next. But I, if I were somebody who corresponded a lot with Bruce Allen, I, I'd, be, I'd be pretty concerned. Or if I was somebody who had a email account through the Washington football team, worked there as a head coach, assistant coach, maybe working somewhere else as an assistant coach or a head coach now, previously worked for the Washington football team for a number of years. I'd be worried that maybe there's something in there that someday, some way, and let's just call it like it is. What if you're Kyle Shanahan or Sean McVay, two NFL head coaches right now who were longtime assistants at the Washington football team? Are they not wondering, what the hell did I ever put in my email all those years I worked there? Is there something in there that somebody is going to try to mischaracterize, that somebody is going to try to blame me for, that somebody is going to try to take out of context, and i got to worry about this now? I better never piss off the league office or whoever it is that's got their finger on this trigger. That, that's the kind of fear that is going to be struck in the hearts of anybody who thinks 
One or more of my emails may be in that 650,000 document vault. And Peter, one last point, because we had a conversation about this earlier this week for a Yahoo video. I, I, th- I, I understand that how it got leaked to the media is one thing, but I think it's undeniable based on the facts that the league decided to make this a thing in the very recent past by taking some of those emails and sending them to the Raiders. The leak of the Demora Smith derogatory email that John Gruden sent came after someone at the league decided we're going to send a subset of these documents to Mark Davis and see what he does with it. So the league itself started that this. timeline is correct. I, I don't, okay. I don't, I'm not positive that timeline is correct because you know, if the story is in the wall street journal at midday on Friday, then those, those emails would have had to been sent to the Raiders, I would assume the previous day, right? And Mark Davis said, Mark Davis was quoted as saying, we didn't know anything about this until this reporter called us. So, I, I mean, I, we're going to find out more about the timeline, but I don't think it's correct, at least from what I know right now, that the Raiders had the emails before they were called by Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal. It's just kind of a weird reality then if one document gets out to the Wall Street Journal and the NFL decides, well, we better send 20 or 50 or however many they sent to the Raiders. It's just the whole thing stinks. The whole thing is odd. It's bizarre. And the only way to prevent this kind of thing from happening moving forward, because Jeff Pash has been victimized by it, too. And we know John Gruden has been. We don't know who's next. I don't think we should be operating in this environment of who's going to be next. Now, the problem is if you release them all, you know, I, th- there may be some people who say, well, geez, I, they never would have gotten to me. Why are they all released? But I think the only way to yeah. be fair to this and to take away that power, that power that someone has is so rare and poisonous that it needs to be diffused. And the only way to do it is release all the emails. That's the only way to do it. And uh, because they clearly can't secure them, Peter, whether they're doing it deliberately or accidentally, they're not securing the documents that they told us were going to be kept forever secret. They're not. They're failing twice now. And you're right. Who's next? And we just have to sit back and wait for the next drop of a New York Times or Wall Street Journal story during a football game of somebody else <laughs> who's going to be put in a position where, right, they're either going to be out of a job or they're going to have to worry about whether or not they're going to be out of a job. What do you think this does to Pash? Yeah. Um, Pash is so highly regarded by Roger Goodell that, um, just my gut feeling, knowing the way the league works, I don't think Pash is going to resign. I don't think they'll ask him to resign. Um, I think what Pash will probably do is issue a statement at some point. And he'll basically say that, uh, I, I didn't do anything really over the top but i need to be more careful in you know when i communicate with anybody in this league that's just my gut feeling but i really don't know and we would be naive to not account for the possibility that what emerged last night is not everything because when the first emails emerged, and it was one email from Gruden, it was not everything. And I think if Gruden would have wisely resigned Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday morning, the other stuff 
never would have been handed to someone for the world to see. So if there is other stuff. Maybe. Maybe. Well. Maybe. Okay. I don't but know. But regardless, regardless, <laughs> the, uh, look, from Pasha's perspective or anyone else, after the first leak, you got to ask yourself what else is out there and is it going to come out? And this is the opportunity to walk away before they make your run. That's another factor for Jeff Pash. And I think it's fair to say there could be other stuff. This, this isn't a comprehensive set of every email, every quote that we saw last night. We didn't have the time to get into some of the details. They're posted in the New York Times article. We deal with one of them. There's one that bothers me in particularly about his attitude toward players being forced to take pay cuts. You can see that story at ProFootballTalk.com. We're going to take a break, and when we return, it's back to football. Week 6 matchups. We'll get you ready for some of the big games to come in just a couple of days when PFT Live continues right after this. I mean, I don't, I look at everybody like a rival. Um, you know, it means something to me because I know how much it means to this organization and the town more than anything. Um, I hate everybody that I play against. So when, I, when I'm going out there, I'm going to try to, like I, like I said last week, I'm going to go out there and try to murder you and with every opportunity I can. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get the same treatment just like last week. It's, it's the same thing in my head. I do have a lot of respect for the city and, and the sports uh, Sports fans, they got there. Did you see yourself ever playing there when your time comes? No. Hard no. It's just not going to happen. The Bears-Packers rivalry gets renewed this weekend. The Bears have been searching high and low for a franchise quarterback since Sid Luckman. The Packers have had two of the all-time greats back-to-back in Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers as a result. And Rodgers made this point earlier in the week. When Favre became the Packers quarterback, the Bears were leading the all-time series by a fairly comfortable margin. Now that is the other way, thanks to the presence of those two guys. They get together this weekend. And every time I see the Bears at 3-2, and two, I think it's a misprint. How are the Bears 3-2? and two? They're one game behind Me the too. Packers. They win this game. Me they're too. technically in first place. It feels like they're 0-5 or 1-4, doesn't it? Yeah. If you're – listen – if you're listening to, and look, I'm not there, and I don't know what they're saying, but I have a good feel for it. If you listen to Chicago Talk Radio, I'm sure that the most that most of the people who are calling are dissatisfied about how the Bears are playing. Now, hard to be that way after you go to Vegas and win. But Mike, I want to take a quick 180 and just tell you one thing that always will stick in my mind about the Bears-Packers rivalry, Okay. I was covering a Bears-Packers game in 1990 for Sports Illustrated. And the rivalry was really at its peak. And the Bears were better. And I remember two things. I was going to follow the Bears team bus from Appleton, Wisconsin to Green Bay. It's about 28, 30 miles. It's a nice little half-hour drive on a Sunday morning. I get in the car. I get behind the bus. And I pull out and I start following them. And I'm listening to the radio and the radio comes on and they say, this is the rockin' apple in Green Bay on Bears Still Suck weekend. (laughs) And I follow them. I follow the bus and about five miles outside of Appleton on the road to Green Bay, I see this strange sight on the side of the road. It's a four lane highway. Buses are going maybe 50, 55 miles an hour. And I see this strange sight. There's a gigantic, 
must be an eight-foot-tall and very wide stuffed brown bear hanging by a rope from a tree. And there are a boy and a girl in the backyard of this house abutting this road. And they are both having their baseball bats out and they're slamming the crap out of this poor bear just as the bear's buses go by. And I said, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a rivalry. They first met November 27, 1921, nearly 100 years ago. The Decatur Staley's 20, the Green Bay Packers 0. They have met 202 total times. The Packers currently lead 101 to 95 with six ties. And they've only ever met once in the postseason. That was the 2010 NFC Championship game when the Packers beat the Bears and then went on to win their most recent Super Bowl. This one on Sunday, Justin Fields has been okay, we keep waiting for him to take off. And is it the offense holding him back? Is it him? We don't know. They're not going to have Damian Williams, most likely, who was the replacement uh, for the, the the starting running back. You know, they're gone and they're forgotten. Uh, Khalil Herbert will take over for Damian Williams if he can't play. And uh, it, it, I just, I think the, the Bears are going to have a hell of a time here. It, it'll be very compelling if they beat the Packers. But look at what the Packers have done since they lost that week one game somehow to the Saints. They, they, they have found their groove offensively and defensively. And uh, I saw the spread for this was four and a half points. I don't know what Vegas is thinking on this one because the Packers are clearly the better team. You know, hey, Mike, by the way, you just mentioned it. And I just keep thinking about this and how weird it is. You know, is there a weirder or more outlier score of the National Football League season than New Orleans 38, Green Bay 3. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to say that's the weirdest score, but just think of it. That happened about 35 days ago. It feels like it was 35 years ago. And, and you know, the Packers, they've got their stuff together now. And again, I think the only way Green Bay loses this game is if Khalil Mack wrecks it. That's that's the only way I can see them getting really frustrated, flustered, and not putting up 28, 30 points. I just don't see any way that the Bears can score in the high 20s in this game. Bills, Steelers from that same day, another one that you look back at and say, how in the hell did that happen? Pittsburgh going into Buffalo and winning 23 to 16. The Chiefs trying to get right. But at least that Washington. was a competitive game. Right. That was I a competitive agree. game. I agree. 38 to 3. <laughs> and the Packers uh, continue to be fueled apparently by the memory of that because they have been the exact opposite ever since. The Chiefs trying to be the exact opposite of what we've seen. Now, they're 2 and 3. Their three losses are against three 4 and 1 teams. A couple of weeks ago, they had a get right game in Philadelphia. They go to Washington this weekend. And the defense is really the concern, Peter. 7.1 yards per play. Are you kidding me? How are you going to beat anybody? I don't care who's on your offense. If you're giving up 7.1 yards per play, you're going to have to score 40 points a game to have a chance against the uh, to, to beat whoever the Chiefs may be playing. But they are playing Washington, and this just feels like one where the Chiefs try to reestablish themselves in some way. Hey, look. You know, all I know is that, and I've heard Andy Reid and everybody talk about, hey, you know, our big problem, it's turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. And yes, okay, 
in the last two seasons combined, Patrick Mahomes threw 11 interceptions. Well, in five weeks, he's already thrown six. So uh, it's, it's bizarre, it's strange, all that, whatever you want to call it. But to me, that's, that is not nearly the biggest problem. You know, turnovers, turnovers, whatever. That's not the biggest problem. The problem is that in five games, they've allowed 29, 36, 30, 30, and 38 points. They have not had a representative game on defense yet this year. And so I look at this team and I say, you know, you can complain about turnovers all you want. And Mahomes has been sloppy. But none of it is really going to matter unless they fix what ails them on defense. And, And Mike, I wrote about this this week. Okay? I want you to think back to draft day 2020. And how we were celebrating the Kansas City Chiefs for being geniuses of taking a guy who was going to be 15% better than Brian Westbrook was in Philadelphia. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Well, so far, what would you say about Clyde Edwards-Hilaire after one year and one month? Is he maybe a B running back? He's He's a C plus running back. He's not Brian Westbrook. And keep this in mind. To take Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the Kansas City Chiefs passed on Antoine Winfield Jr. How great would he look right now alongside of Tyron Matthew in that secondary? And they passed on Trevon Diggs, who I forget, it was I think it was Deion Sanders. Some, somebody said last week, he's Defensive Player of the Year. He's not just the best corner in the league. He's Defensive Player of the Year so far. So... As I think Kansas City has done a great job setting up this team for long-term success, but I'll tell you what, that draft could haunt them. Well, and when the defense is that bad, that's how the offense ends up getting sloppy because it feels a greater sense of urgency to do more with the opportunities that it has, and that may be contributing to the mistakes from Patrick Mahomes because he knows he can't trust his defense the way he could in the past. You mentioned Trevon Diggs. He's leading the NFL with six interceptions through five games, and the 4-1 and one Cowboys go to New England where the Patriots are 2-3, and 0-3 oh at home potentially falling to 0-4 at home if they lose to the Cowboys. Can Mac Jones, the rookie starter for the Patriots, have any luck against that Cowboys defense, which is dramatically better than it was last year, Peter? Well, Mike, you know, Bill Belichick always does a good job in trying to take something away from what you do very well on offense. But, I mean, right now Dallas has so many offensive weapons that Bill Belichick would have to try to neutralize uh, you know, so many of them to really shut down this team. And again, to me, the only way that Belichick and the Patriots are going to be able to have success in this game in keeping the Cowboys from scoring in the 30s is putting pressure on Dak Prescott with a minimum amount of rushers. They need to stay back and cover. They need to cover C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper, obviously. And so in this game, I think it's incumbent on the Patriots to make sure you don't have to blitz too much because that is just going to be playing right into the hands of Dak Prescott. We'll take a closer look at two of the more compelling matchups of Week 6 when this Friday edition of PFT Live continues right after this. 